I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello there and welcome to the Best News Podcast from Livewire brought to you by Alaska Airlines. This is the show where we scour the internet and the wires and any other possible news source to find the good news that's happening out there in the world. And each week we are able to find some of those stories and bring them to you. My name is Luke Burbank. Right over there is my friend Elena Passarello. Elena, welcome to episode Elf. <laughs> Der Episode in Elfen. <laughs> That's right. Episode Elf of the Best News Podcast. Episode 11. I know this because listener Avery emailed in and said, I'm a, a German major. I was a German major. And so I can't help but suggest that you use the German word for 11. What a great suggestion. 11th week. It's my lucky number, 11. Really? Yeah, because the first three letters of Elena are the first three letters of 11. And Whoa. my birthday is on the 22nd, which is two 11s. So, so this was, I mean, this was meant to be. This is the most luckiest episode ever for us. That's right. Avery says, I was a German major at Middlebury College in 05. And I'm glad that this is finally proving to be useful to anyone other than myself. <laughs> um, so Avery, thank you for checking. Avery also says some very nice things about the show. Talks about how... They've been enjoying listening to the show during the pandemic, and thank you for reminding me that I am an adult with a sense of humor and an <laughs> appetite for good ideas and meaningful questions. It's made a huge difference these last a couple of years. I think Avery means Livewire in general, but also now the Best News Podcast. Hey, shout out. Shouten outen. I don't actually we speak con- German. <laughs> we continue to get one fan letter per week, and we read it. So if you would like to be the fan letter next week... Send it to uh, bestnews at livewireradio.org. Oh, uh, so that's the positive feedback for the week. The slightly Uh less positive feedback. It's not even feedback. Well, it came from our editor, Melanie Sevchenko. Oh, no. Alerted me recently that, remember last week, Elena, how I was talking about a possible narluga? Mm-hmm. The offspring of a pod of, of of beluga that a narwhal had fallen in with. Mm-hmm. They would make a beautiful narluga. It could be the first ever narluga. It wouldn't be. There have been other narlugas. No. Yes. That's the kind of correction I can get behind. Because I was skeptical that this narluga thing was ever going to happen. But if now that it has happened, mm-hmm. thank you, Melanie, 
That's great news. I apologize to the listeners of the Best News Podcast for putting out false information about <laughs> Narlugas. There have been Narlugas. This would be, by some count, maybe the third Narluga they know of. Wow. Yeah. The third Narluga's the charm, I believe. That's they what they always say mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. here on the Best News Podcast. I think this might be the first <laughs> time that's ever been that's ever been said. <laughs> Let's get to what's good out there in the wider world. Elena, what's the best news that you saw this week? Well, it's convenient that we were just talking about mail because mine is is mail related. Did you know, this is something that I don't know, that there were all women brigades that served in World War II, brigades in the armed forces that were entirely of women? I didn't know that, actually. I didn't either. I also didn't know that one brigade was made up entirely of black women. Wow. It's the only one of its kind back in World War II. It was called the 6888 or the 6888th Central Post Directory Battalion of the Women Army Corps. Whoa. And the Women Army Corps was originally envisioned as, of course, an all-white branch of the armed forces. But Mary McLeod Bethune and Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady at the time, basically goaded Franklin Delano Roosevelt into allowing black women to serve overseas as well. And thank goodness that that happened because the 6888 arrived in England. There's like 850 women, right, in this brigade. They arrived in England in 1945 to a postal crisis. There was a warehouse in Birmingham in England with a six-month backlog. It was overstuffed with mail. There, It was an unheated warehouse, and all the cookies and cakes that people had been sending their loved ones that were fighting overseas were being eaten by rats. There were tons of packages addressed to people with the same name because people weren't very creative when naming their children back in the 1920s. There's a lot of John Smiths. And, yeah, exactly. You know. Private Ryans, for example. Right. There were, um, you know, people who were deceased and Mm -hmm. they had to be notified. There were packages that were poorly addressed. We're talking a six-month backlog of 17 million letters and parcels. So this was all the mail and and things that were being sent from the U.S. over to GIs that were in Europe fighting during World War II, which, as we know from the movies and even some actual, like, documentaries— That was a huge deal. Like if you're out fighting and you're risking your life and you're in a strange environment, getting that letter from home or that, you know, special thing that somebody maybe in your family sent you. I mean, that's a huge morale thing. And all that stuff was just like sitting in a warehouse going nowhere, basically. Yeah. An ocean of it, basically. And so then the six triple eight show up, these 850 amazing women, and they worked around the clock in eight hour shifts in this warehouse that barely had any heat. And of course it was during like the blitz. And so there were all these air raid warnings. So they were in this low light, not to mention they were like experiencing a ton of sexism and racism because it was a real rarity to have women serving, to have women in officers positions and to have black women in the same situation. But they persevered and they developed this intense system to file and serialize all of this mail. And by the time they were done, they were able to process something like 650,000 parcels a week. Whoa. You know, they became this kind of central command for correspondence during the Second World War. So here's the news part of this. (laughs) Okay. I'm hearing the best part. Now I want to hear the news part. 
So only six of these women are still alive, but those women and then the families of all the other women of the 6888 are about to be honored, given basically the highest honor that our nation can give people. Wisconsin Representative Gwen Moore heard from a daughter of one of the 6888s. She wrote a bill. It went through the House, which is her branch of government, and then it went through the Senate. It got bipartisan support, which is like, what's that anymore? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that was still a thing. Biden just signed it, and now the women of the 6888 are going to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. Wow. Yeah. So this was, this was a, a, a brigade, like you said, of all African-American women going over to England to make this happen. It was the only all-black women brigade that served overseas. There were, I think there are other African-American women who served domestically. But okay. this is a real, a real unique group and a group that, you know, changed the face of the way that Americans experienced the war. So, And also that, as was so often the case, what's totally overlooked by history, because I'm just hearing about this from you in 2022, something that, first of all, not that everything has to be reduced down to cinema, but that has the makings of a really interesting film. I mean, a movie about the male. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who? But like, how is it that this is the first that I'm hearing about this? It's because this is the kind of stuff that's just been overlooked for so long. So that's amazing that it's these these folks are finally being recognized for for their contribution. And you said there are still actually a handful of these amazing women who are alive? Six members of the 6888 are going to be able to experience this. And one of them was interviewed and she said, I can't believe anybody would ever give me a medal for that. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding? <laughs> of wow. course you deserve one. The 6888, that is very cool. I um, saw some some good news coming out of Hawaii where I'm actually going to be traveling in, uh, I think, a week or so. So now I know what to do with any excess cardboard that I generate while I'm in Hawaii, Elena, which is I'm going to take it to the folks at Circle Pack, which is a grassroots mobile cardboard shredding operation. So it turns out that like paper and cardboard are actually the largest components of municipal solid waste in the United States. Of all the stuff that gets kind of thrown away, paper and cardboard is a huge, huge amount of it. It was like six, almost 68 million tons last year. And you might think, cardboard, I don't know, isn't that kind of like, it's like paper, that'll just sort of, I don't know. Um, self-mulch. <laughs> it'll self-mulch, it'll just go away. No, the problem is when you throw cardboard into a landfill, it starts to release methane which is really harmful to the environment and, of course, speeds up climate change. So a place like Hawaii, which, of course, it's a chain of islands. They don't have an infinite amount of land to dispose of stuff. For a long time, what was happening was a lot of the um, waste, particularly things like cardboard and paper, were going on to like barges and being shipped over to somewhere in Asia because there was kind of nowhere to put it in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. But that, of course, is very bad for the carbon footprint. If you're using up all of this kind of carbon energy to take your garbage and move it somewhere far away. That's not a good system either. We'll enter a 29-year-old guy named Evan Lamb. Evan Lamb's moms have a non-toxic nail polish business that they run out of Hawaii. (laughs) And they were ordering all this shipping material because they do a lot of, you know, online stuff. They were ordering all of this cardboard, like shipping stuff and getting it from California. And it was so expensive to get the shipping material to Hawaii where Evan's mom's 
business was that he, as an intrepid young person, thought maybe we can just make it here. So he bought this special machine and he started buying a bunch of cardboard so that he could make the packaging to mail out the stuff for his mom's business. And he kind of got into the groove with cardboard and started thinking about it more and realized that there was a better way to deal with a lot of excess cardboard that's happening in Hawaii. Uh And it is to shred it and to give it to people to use as packing material so you can like put it in you know, a box when you're shipping something or to give it to people who are doing composting or uh, taking part in what's called vermiculture, Oh, right? Which is like worm-based composting. Vermiculture. Yes, right? <laughs> very, very uh, German sounding. I don't know if that's the origin of the word, but I know it involves worms because I was reading up on it today. Cool. They've got these great operations now going where... They will take the cardboard, shred it up, and then you can take it to your garden, or there are people that are have these larger sort of green spaces that are like community gardens that they run, where they take all of the clean cardboard that's been shredded, and then they distribute it in the ground, and then the worms come in and eat it and turn it into mm. compost. And it doesn't put out as much methane because the worms have processed it. Yeah, in fact, it makes really good compost. There's a, a woman cited in this article named Chantel Chung who runs this huge vermicomposting operation. And her problem was she didn't have enough cardboard. Like she needed more cardboard to help run this thing. And meanwhile, you've got Evan, who's trying to figure out what do we do with all this cardboard in Hawaii. So that was kind of a match made in heaven. Now they're working together. I just learned about something called the Kumalipo, which is the sacred Hawaiian creation chant. Uh Uh-huh. The third animal that's named in the sacred Hawaiian creation chant is the worm. Hey! <laughs> Take that to your next barbecue or party if that's something that's allowed in your particular area right now. The third animal named in the sacred Hawaiian creation chant is the worm. So folks over there have known for a long time how important worms are and composting and vermiculture and all of this. But it sounds like now they have figured out this really great system to kind of bring it all together. That makes me so happy. I kind of want to do the worm. It (laughs) it also sounds kind of oddly (laughs) satisfying. Like, I would like to go to a cardboard shredding party. You you and my cat. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's some big kind of like thing you're feeding it into, kind of like a, like a, uh, you know, um, what do you call those? Wood chipper, but it's for cardboard and you feed it in and then you get this like real satisfying kind of, you know, you take all this cardboard that's just sitting there. It's going to be bad for the environment and you turn it into something that's going to be good for the environment. Cardboard and actually, I brought up the worm as a joke, but that breakdance move, the worm, is actually worms and cardboard have always been together in breakdancing because people used mm-hmm. to do breakdances on top of cardboard. When I was in the Backstreet Breakers, Elena, in the <laughs> early <were> 80s, <laughs> I really was. Do you know that I was in a breakdancing crew? Oh, no, I do not. I did not know that. <laughs> it was called the Backstreet Breakers. Was it you and a bunch of invisible people? or were No, there- <laughs> no, these were real people. I was sort of the mascot. I was probably about, I would have been like eight, maybe seven or eight. <gasps> and we had cardboard, which we would bring out. Sometimes kids would show up with linoleum, too, because it was also mm-hmm. very, like, you could do a backspin on it. But it was primarily... And for the younger listeners, hey kids, there was a time when people would spread out, you know, cardboard on the ground, and then you would do, you know, the worm, you would do the windmill, all kinds of cool breakdancing moves that I kind of 
I really was not that great at breakdancing, but I think it was so hilarious that this <laughs> seven-year-old kid thought he was a breakdancer, that they just kind of let me be part of the crew. The Backstreet Breakers. The Backstreet Breakers. And like, so one of the things you would do is if you wanted to like have a breakdance competition with someone, you would call them out was the term. Mm. And then if they didn't like accept the challenge, then they were called a biter. And so what you would then do is I would take like a tiny like Sharpie I'd like call someone out and then they would be like ignoring this seven-year-old who's <laughs> little, not good at breakdancing. Little pipsqueak. And then they would be like, no, I'm talking to my friend. What are you doing? And then I would go write something out like, oh, guess what? This guy's a biter. And I would like write it in a Sharpie on like On your cardboard. <laughs> I, like to just really let the world know that that person was a biter because they would not engage in the breakdance with me. So, And if like Pompeii happened and, and the back street, I'm assuming this happened on the back street, was covered and, and preserved a thousand years from now, somebody would uncover that wall and it would say, mm-hmm. you know, Matthew Jr. is a biter, LB, yes. 1984. This went on, Elena, until my dad rolled up one day. Uh-oh. So I had been going to this breakdancing spot by Green Lake in Seattle for an entire summer. Maybe the greatest summer of my life. And then one day, because I wasn't home in time for like Bible study or something, Uh my dad got on his bike and rode down to where I was. And he didn't just come grab me. He just observed me from far away, (laughs) breakdancing, listening to non-Christian music, Uh palling around with kids who were smoking cigarettes. It was a very, very rebellious scene. And uh, he eventually walked over and he didn't like take me by the ear, but you know, he kind of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sort of took me by the arm and said, we're leaving now. And I was never allowed to go back to the breakdancing scene again. Aww. Otherwise, I could have been a professional breakdancer right now. I could have had a totally different life. That's what kept you from it. I could tell. Uh-huh. Pretty much. Yeah. This would be a breakdancing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I hope in Hawaii they shred most of the cardboard, but they leave just enough for the breakdancers. Hell Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about what's coming up this week on LiveWire. Chris Gethard is going to stop by and talk about his life as a stand-up comedian, which has been about half of his life, which is also why he named his new comedy special, Chris Gethard, Half My Life. We're going to talk about the comedy special, how he ended up at an alligator theme park, throwing hot dogs to the alligators and things like that. Also, speaking of terrifying animals and... Elena, bringing it back once again to worms on this show, we're going to talk to Julia Rosen, who's a science journalist, about jumping earthworms, which are taking over parts of the country and threatening the maple syrup supply of this fine nation. Uh, And we're also going to have music from Shaky Graves. So do check that out. It drops on Friday. This show, though, is produced by a whole team of folks who help make it possible, including Laura Haddon, our executive producer, our producer and our editor, and our Narluga fact-checker is Melanie (laughs) Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Uh, Special thanks, as always, to our intern, Jonas Myers. He's not a Jonas brother, but we think he's arguably better than any of the Jonas brothers. Heads and shoulders. Molly Pettit is our technical director and our mixer, our theme, music, was composed by A. Walker Spring. Also, thanks to all of you, the best news listeners, for tuning in. We will be back here very soon with another episode of the show. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Now go on out there and have the absolute best week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered 
right to your heart and ears each week. Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 